0: Hey, guys, welcome to the Improvement Podcast, where the mission is to help young men develop their character, identity, and mindset in order to activate their potential and achieve their goals in life. Today, we have on another special guest. Her name is Leslie Tolan. She is an entrepreneur, life coach, and an advanced grief recovery specialist. Thank you for coming on to the show, Leslie.
1: It is so my pleasure to be with you, Kamani, especially meeting you and knowing that the work that you do is with men because I am the sister of two older brothers and I so get and have lived with men's issues all my life. So it's really my honor to be with you today.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm really happy to, to have you on the show today. And so thank you to give the listeners a little bit of background information about you so they can know what you do, what information would you like to share with the audience?
1: I am so uh, passionate about the work that I do with grief and loss. Uh, I believe that with the world we're living in today, especially the timeliness of asking that question, Kamani, when we have just walked through the last year with the pandemic and all the losses that collectively we have had, I am so um, passionate about offering a pathway for anyone who is and has had any kind of loss personally to have a healing journey that is short term, evidence based, and action based. And that's the short term offer that I am proud to offer my clients. So we can be speaking about that this evening. And um, I'm so happy to be able to present it to your listeners.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I'm happy that uh, you're here to present it to them as well. And so I guess one thing I'd like to ask about that is. What motivated you to get into this space of being a a grief recovery specialist?
1: I like that question so much. I, I am a youthful senior woman who has had an inordinate amount of personal loss. And without going into all those details of all the losses that I have had, Later in my career with hospice services for 12 years, I knew that I wanted as both a social worker and as the manager of volunteer services in hospice work, I wanted to get closer to my clients. And I knew that grief and loss was the avenue that was right for me. So I chose to go back into training after I had gone through my pathway to becoming a psychotherapist and when a mentor to me five years back introduced me to the grief recovery method, I knew that I was home. Sometimes I think in our lifetime, we are introduced to an experience or a person or a place and it just feels like our soul is at home. And because I wanted to work in counseling in some fashion, this particular method resonated so much with what I have walked through in the pain that I have had with losses. And my only regret in having it introduced to me five years back, is that someone did not take me by the hand and introduce it to me 30 years ago. Because with all the losses I have had, whether they've been through chronic illness of loved ones, or an auto fatal accident or a plain fatal accident or whatever the losses have been, this particular eight-week method would have helped me so very much way, way back. So I'm so really delighted that I have it as a toolbox that I can represent to my clients today who are walking through any kind of personal loss. And I know that your listeners, whatever age they are, because of COVID especially, have had some kind of loss during the last year. And the losses don't necessarily have to be of a person or of um, an incident like moving across country. When we move from one place to another, that is a loss. But the intangible losses that you and I spoke about when we first met, those are huge during the last year for all of us as well. We lost our trust last year in our leadership with how we were being treated as United States citizens. And now we have the vaccine, which is wonderful walking forward. We lost safety and trust in our nation for a bit. And now we are in a healing phase, which is wonderful. And so many of us have experienced losses of people that we have loved. And so it's my honor to be able to have a service where I can walk someone who's hurting through eight weeks of homework and action and heart-to-heart conversation, and know at the end of eight weeks that he or she will have a emotional toolbox and a way to handle loss in a new way. That you know, was a long answer to yeah, your question.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to say, you know, I love hearing these types of stories where uh, people, you know, might have a situation that they come from that could be traumatic or damaging. And they find a way to turn that negativity into positivity. And so I love that you told your story about how you had different struggles and grief that you're going through and how serving people in this type of way resonated with you in that way to where you were able to move into a type of work that you're a lot more passionate about. And I think, honestly, the people that find a way to get into a niche that they're passionate about and that they can resonate with personally, I think they do the best work. You know, kind of same thing with me getting into the podcasting thing. And so i love hearing those type of stories i just wanted to say that but also you kind of touched on the grief recovery process and how you wish you had came across it earlier and so something that i like to ask about is uh what was it about this specific process that stuck out to you and made you want to develop your life's work to it
1: i so appreciate that question kamani and if i may talk just for a moment a minute about the grief recovery method and the founder of it because his story is just so uplifting. John James is the grief recovery method founder. And this is a gentleman who's now in his late seventies and was a Vietnam vet. So 43 years back, he and his then wife were so looking forward to having a baby together. And when their three day old son died, he was absolutely devastated emotionally. And he stood on a pier in Santa Monica with a weapon. He was a vet. He had a weapon and he contemplated ending his own life. And then he had a spiritual epiphany. At that time, he had been three years sober and was a friend of Bill W. And I'm sure that some of your listeners can relate to the story of recovery from whatever kind of substance or drug or alcohol addiction it might be. John was three years sober. He thought about going back out and using, because he was so in despair. And then he had a spiritual epiphany. And in that epiphany, he was told to write down his lost hopes and dreams and expectations that he would never live with his son. And when he began to write these action steps, people next door and friends of friends would come over to his house at the time and say, John, we've heard what you're doing. Tell us more. And slowly the grief recovery method was developed. And this is an action-based program based on a handbook that he's written with homework assignments every week that I walk through with my clients. So it's a series of planned, structured steps that allows us to experientially walk through the sadness we have about whatever our loss is and learn how to step-by-step walk through grief and process grief in a brand new way. And I so wish that I had had this 30 years back because it would have helped me so very much with all of my own losses. So when I learned of this five years back, and at that time, I was just finishing my first exam, passed my first exam as a psychotherapist, and I, I knew that I wanted to develop myself as an entrepreneur with this method that so was enlightening for me and struck me so passionately that I didn't want to be only able to work in the California area and be licensed here. I wanted to be able to market this incredible experience across states. And that's what I have done in the last several years as I've had clients in like 10 different states now. And internationally, I've had my first client, which is really exciting, because I wanted to extend the work internationally. And the beauty of what John did, oh my goodness, Kamani, there are specialists like me across the nation. The handbook that I shared with you when we first met, the grief recovery handbook has now been translated into 32 languages around the world. And there are offices in Mexico, Honduras, Scandinavia, Australia, down under, New Zealand, and Mexico, and a huge, wonderful, wonderful group of people as specialists in the UK, in the United Kingdom, all of whom are offering this method, because this one gentleman sat down with his despair and developed this very unique way of working with grief. And the last thing that I want to say for now is sometimes my colleagues who are therapists or psychoanalysts or licensed in whatever way will say, well, Leslie, is this an evidence-based process? And very happily, I can comment that yes, it is, because some years back, a team of researchers at the College of Public Health at Kent State University did research and the groups that they led through this method At the end of eight weeks, what they found, Kamani, is that those individuals had a significant change in their knowledge of, their attitudes about, their beliefs, because you and I both know that it is our personal beliefs which affect our and lead us to our behaviors, and that their beliefs were changed, and ultimately their behaviors were changed. So this is the only evidence-based offer and process for handling grief that exists in the United States at this time. So it makes me very proud to be able to offer that.
0: Wow, that's amazing to hear, you know, just when you told the story about how it's in all these different countries now and even talked about the origin of it. And so what it sounds like to me, pretty much what set it apart was that it was, I guess, proven that it worked uh, with statistics and everything. And then also that it gives people a set step-by-step process to not only face the grief, but to be able to go through it as opposed to the typical thing, which would be avoiding it. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, some of the ways that people go about avoiding their grief addiction. And of course, you know, that might just not be drugs or alcohol. It could also be sex and other types of things. Yes. And so when you're talking about grief, it gets outside of death and those types of things. Like you talked about before, it can really be anything. And I think a lot of people may not realize that some of the things that they do consistently, whether it's going out to drink all the time or having lots of partners could be a way that they're coping with some sort of grief or stress uh, that's kind of under the surface that you just haven't taken the time or developed the awareness to truly face.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I find this, I think I shared with you when we first met that I have the honor now of working one day a week at a local detox center in my local area in Tarzana. And the young men and women, and some of them are in their 30s, some are 40s, some are 50, some are 60, who have had an addiction to whatever the substance or whatever the reason is that they're there. And underneath every addiction is grief. Every single time I talk with another client at the site, what was happening before they began to use, whatever it was, Just like you said, it could have been sex with multiple wrong partners. It could have been retail therapy that put them in a great amount of debt. It could be a breakup, a divorce. It could be estrangement from a friend. Whatever it was that emotionally was so trying, using whatever substance it was, was a way to handle the grief. And it was a wrong way to handle the grief because all it did for the moment was make that moment feel different not better, maybe better for a moment, but ultimately not, and ultimately just spins them into a, a cycle of use and abuse and self-hatred that needs correction, and this is one way that it is so profoundly able to offer anyone who's grieving any kind of a loss a result that can lead them to peace of mind, peace of heart. Sometimes when I talk with people who find me through the internet or my website or my Psychology Today profile, wherever, and I hear them speak in my consultation and they're walking to the refrigerator at three in the morning for Jamocha Almond Fudge, or they're unable to sleep, or they're unable to eat, or they're fill in the blank, whatever is going on that is so painful to listen to. And every time the story, whatever the use of something else to quell the feelings of loss is happening, the result is the same. And it makes them feel worse until they can find something emotionally that can help them feel better in the moment from any loss and ultimately have peace of mind and a new pathway forward that gives them the feeling of light after loss.
0: So, this may sound like a dumb question, but no uh, questions are dumb. Okay, so I'll go ahead and shoot. And so, the question I have is for the people that may not have had a specific event where it was definite that it, it caused in the grief, you know, like for example, a death in the family or something like that, or losing a job. For those people that don't have that definite event to be able to tie their grief to, are there, have you noticed that there's some people that might be having these experiences of, you know, stress and addiction and all that, but he might not necessarily have the awareness to know what it is that's causing them to have these destructive behaviors
1: absolutely and sometimes we don't know the reason why we are depressed or we feel out of our skin uncomfortable in our skin uncomfortable is what i meant to say or we feel just not okay with ourselves And we're reaching out for something that is outside of ourselves to make us feel better. And we don't necessarily have to have the reason to know what that might be to feel down and out and be seeking other methods to make us feel better in the moment that are not healthy for us. You know, I think, Hamani, it would be good to just talk For a moment about the definitions of grief that we offer in the grief recovery method, because I think some of your listeners might feel a. um, uh, Might hear this and and sense it as oh yes that's that's what i've been feeling I just didn't have the words for it, so the definitions that john James has offered us in the grief recovery handbook are several one is. Grief is a normal and natural reaction to loss. However, in our Western culture, how we handle grief is not normal and not natural and not healthy. And many times because we're speaking now and your good work is with men and growing up with my brothers and seeing how my late father, who was raised by an immigrant father who didn't know how to spell the word feeling and was militaristic and beating him And so my father took out his anger and upset on my brothers with a strap and washing their mouths with soap. And it was brutal for me as a young youngest to witness that. It was traumatic to witness that. This happens sometimes in many families because in our culture, it's like men are taught not to cry. You're weak if you cry. And this is so insane. This is so crazy. I, as a Youthful senior woman, I'm happy to to share with you that as an aside story, I'm married now happily to a gentleman for the last 13 years. And one of the first things that I loved about him when we were at one of our early movies is that it was a sad story and he had tears. And I looked over and I thought, oh, I like him so much already that he can access how he feels and show it. This is such a strength showing tears is a strength not a weakness and yet in our culture with our beloved men they are mostly trained to hold back and not show emotion so wrong so other definitions of grief are reaching out for someone who's always been there for us and we will want him or her to be there for us one more time they're no longer there or reaching out for someone we want them to be there for us who's never been there for us and when we want him or her one more time to be present for us they're still not there and so when i first heard these definitions i was so enlightened because i led the way that john expressed them so differently than what i had heard ever in the past and when i share these with my clients they can relate to them so well because so much of this is true in our culture when i speak to a group i'll ask many times what do you think in our western culture is the single most off-limits topic of conversation and hands will go up and someone might say death someone might say divorce uh feelings emotion no it's grief we don't know how to even call it by the word it is we call it everything but what it is we call it stress we call it overwhelm we call it years ago in my generation burnout we call it anything but sadness and grief because we don't know how to gracefully face it and deal with it and so this is an opportunity for someone who's hurting to get that there's a way to process to learn to process grieving feelings that is uplifting and actually offers a lifelong toolbox after eight short weeks to teach each of us how to process our feelings going forward so it doesn't mean that somebody has to depend on leslie for the next five years it is eight weeks and if they want to return to work on some other losses we work on one at a time they can and it's a joyful experience at the end of eight weeks for what everyone learns.
0: When you talked about the, uh, I guess, the, the expectation for men not to talk about those sorts of things, and that grief is kind of an off-limits topic, that definitely resonated with me because, of course, being a guy, that was something that was seen as like the standard and expectation when I was growing up and it wasn't until I started to develop into my own man and build my own identity that I was able to kind of put different aspects of, I guess you could say, what's supposed to be masculinity or like male culture behind me and take on different habits. And so one thing that's also surprising to me that I didn't really notice until I kind of started to take this stance of just being the person I wanted to be instead of what I guess society or parents anybody else put on me as far as expectations was that it's not just something that like men perpetuate but also women so i've seen a lot of women also kind of have these same expectations for what a man is supposed to be and so it's kind of like a full cycle type of thing where it's already not good for us and you have other men that are putting the pressure on you it could be friends family whoever else to be in this certain like i guess mold for what a man is supposed to be and then you even have the women that you might be interested in or talking to that might have that same type of expectation for you as well. And so I appreciate you touching on that. And one question I have from something that you had brought up previously was how whenever you would sit in there and talk to some of your clients about some of these different ways they can experience grief. Like when you're talking about when you're looking for someone and depending on them to communicate with and they aren't there, people may not realize that causes them grief whenever you talk to them about that, is that the first time that they realize that that's what's giving them near issue or did they kind of have an idea?
1: Uh, most of the time, that's a wonderful question, Kamani. Most of the time they have an idea. Most of the time a client will come to me because he or she has walked through the horrid experience of say as a parent. i work now with several parents whose adult children have OD'd. And it's so tragic to, to see that pain and to walk them through this process. And the, the feeling of guilt that a parent might have of what could I have done differently so that this didn't happen comes up all the time. But guilt in the work that we do with grief recovery We teach that if there's no, the definition in the dictionary of guilt is the intent to harm. And if there's no intent to harm, then there's nothing about which to be guilty. And so most people will come to me with something that has happened for which they're sad, a breakup of a boyfriend, a breakup of a girlfriend, the loss of a parent, the loss of a friendship. And yet I'm so happy you asked that question because, grief can be such a long list. There are like 43 different kinds of experiences of grief that we can have in a lifetime that have nothing to do with death or divorce. It can be moving with a family across country and having children who are young leaving their friends and moving at eight years old from los angeles to new york because dad got a better job and the parents are oh but honey we're going to have a better home and we're going to have better schools and the kids are broken up because they're leaving the friends they've had since they're young 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 kids and just living in one place and moving to another can be devastating for children and devastating in many ways for us. We can even grieve something that is a happy experience. And I think we talked about this a few weeks ago that we can get married and we might be totally in love with our partner and so happy to be walking on a path together into the future. And yet there might be a part of us if we've been independent and on our own before we married that might miss just being on our own and having nobody to answer to except our little apartment or our little condo. Grief can be both the front of the hand and the back of the hand and so many different kinds of grief. We can grieve moving from one place to another. We can grieve being a woman, being pregnant and having a miscarriage, or we can be a man with his woman and having infertility issues arise and not knowing what it is. We can have trauma as a child. We can experience physical, mental, sexual, emotional abuse. And this is something that many times I deal with with my clients, that they have trauma from their childhood that they haven't yet dealt with. And it's showing up later in life in different ways. And working through trauma with this particular eight week process has been very conducive to excellent results of getting clear and understanding what happened years ago and letting go of grief about what happened. So losses can occur in so many more ways than just death or divorce. And this particular process can embrace each of them.
0: And so I know one thing that uh, was kind of in my personal process of dealing with grief i haven't use a program or anything but i'm sure that this is part of your process as well and it's a probably a tough thing for guys more specifically but i guess the first thing was acknowledging the issue and i guess taking on that vulnerability i guess that comes with that of acknowledging that something happened to you yes. and i guess that goes into the other thing that you had talked about about having that uh that ability to or I'm I'm forgetting the way that you put it, but tapping into to your emotions, I get I guess you could say it was something like that. But um, what are some of the steps that you kind of go through with some of your male clients to help them get over that hump of you know trying to be you know a macho tough guy to acknowledging that hey, this is something that I do not like that's going on in my life and I'm not happy about it.
1: So when a client comes to me with whatever he or she is aware that they're hurting from. I always acknowledge them in the first step in just picking up the phone or writing me an email and saying, can we talk? That is so courageous. That always brings almost tears to my eyes because I know what it feels like to be in a, a, an emotional place of hurt and the courage that it takes to reach out for help. So the awareness that something is off is the first step toward healing. Absolutely the awareness. And then the step to know that there is a incomplete emotional loss, whatever that might be. Unresolved grief is about those things that are hopes, dreams and expectations that we have not spoken about openly. And in the process of the eight weeks, I teach my clients how to address those with me in the homework that I give each client. And so to be able to look in one's life and one's heart at unresolved grief and take small and correct steps toward addressing it is something that will always bring a result that is productive and healing, and really so peaceful for whomever is walking through those steps. And the specific steps of the program are what I teach when I have had somebody talk with me in consultation and say, yes, I want to move forward. So I'm not going to go into all that detail in this conversation. However, the first step toward being in the process is just having the awareness that something doesn't feel right and then having a consultation with me and saying can we just talk about this so that we can see with an informed decision made if this is the right process for someone or not and it might not be and that's okay and it might not be that leslie is the right specialist for this particular person because i believe that people each of us as human beings, love to work when something is really an emotional moment with someone we like, we know, and we trust. And if we meet in a consultation and there's that connection with someone, then working with me in this program is probably going to be very beneficial. And if there's not that connection, that's okay. There are many specialists out there with whom anybody can connect to walk through first the awareness, and then the desire to move forward and learning what those steps are and doing the homework that i said each of the clients that i have will do with the handbook that they'll have and john refers to his handbook as a 240 page chapter about learning to process loss and it's easy reading and it speaks from his heart to ours in every page And I reread it all the time. And every time I have grown further in my own growth, and I continue to find more in the book than I did even a year ago.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. And that's, uh, that's good to hear That You know, still to this day, you still get value from taking a look at the book, even though you're an expert in it now. And so... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. No,
1: no, no, no. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: And one thing I was going to um also add was you had mentioned awareness and that's definitely something I hope that we build in having this conversation when guys listen to this, because the thing about it, and I can even speak from my own personal experience. I knew at certain points in time that I was unhappy with, uh, I guess, with how I was feeling in my life, but the thing about it was that there were some points in time, you know, especially when I was younger, that I didn't know why I couldn't really pinpoint. It. And it wasn't until like I started to listen to content like this and actually hear about it and hear about the different ways that I guess that grief could be manifested in my life that I actually started to gain that awareness, like what you're saying. And so, I think really the biggest issue that I had, and probably that a lot of guys have is, you know, even acknowledging that that's even supposed to be a thing in the first place. It's almost like we put these superhuman expectations on ourselves because that's kind of what is pushed on you for like what a man is supposed to be, where you're not supposed to have any type of negative feelings or anything like that except for anger, et cetera, et cetera. And so I definitely think that's important. And it's obviously a need within, I guess among men because I think like, if I'm correct, the suicide rate among men is like 3.5 times higher than women, something kind of like that. So I, it just I'm, goes to show you.
1: I, I'm so happy that you brought that up. That's so sensitive, Kamani. And the um, the difference exactly in data between men and women is higher than with men. Yes. And in this last year, the rate from CDC is it's a 30% increase in suicide during the pandemic across the nation. Just horrific sadness. And I believe if every person who was so sad that they thought the only way out to relieve that pain was to end their life, could have a specialist walk them through this program, they would be in a different state. It just is my true belief because I have seen the despair turn into, I've seen pain turn into power and purpose so many times over with this program. And I, for one, being the sister to brothers and loving men as friends, as I do, I believe it is such a strength for any man to say, to reach out and say, I'm hurting and I need help. And for any of your listeners who are at that precipice of feeling like something's really wrong, need to talk about it, to ask for help is ultimately courageous, in my humble view. It takes so much courage to say, "I something's wrong, it's not right, I'm not feeling right. Every day I wake up in this darkness, and I don't want to be here, and I don't know how the hell to get out of it. I need help. I need to talk with someone. That is courageous. And Academy Award recovery is so often a part of the fabric of our crazy culture that when we walk down the street or we walk through the hallway at work and we say, how are you doing, Kamani? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. What is I'm fine? I'm fine in my world. Fine means feelings inside not expressed. Or feelings inside never expressed. That's what I'm fine means. And so many times in our culture, we are so brief in greeting each other. We might say, So how are you doing, Kamani? Before you even answer, I'm halfway down the hall. Like, did somebody ask and really care to listen to your answer or how you're doing? So, yes, I believe that asking for help takes so much courage and being aware that there's something that's off, and just knowing that someone. Any young man or middle-aged man or senior man who knows something's not right and asks for help has my ultimate smile for the courage that that takes. Because I know, yes, it does take courage for women to ask for help as well. However, it's more defined within our culture that it's okay for women to be more... At ease with expressing emotion. It's just a part of our culture that is not right.
0: Right. That's what I was actually going to bring up, because the thing about it is that, due to the fact that it is acceptable, women are having those conversations, which I guess eventually lead to them not doing drastic things like committing suicide and such. But it's kind of become the standard, not even just in the workplace, but among male friends and even, really, among family too. I would say, where the default response is just to say. I'm doing fine. It's almost like as if you if you brought up stuff that you're actually struggling with, it's it's almost like kind of rude or like out of place because it's yes. like I'm not I'm not actually trying to hear how you're doing. You're just supposed to say fine. It kind of seems like that's the standard. And one word that you had had brought up uh, when you were talking before, you said purpose. And I feel like that's a major key for guys, because the thing about it is that Whenever you have like a purpose that you're working towards, a reason to live, that's usually what can pull you from having those um, being in those dark places and having those experiences. And uh, also, I would say that having a purpose uh, for life that you work towards day to day can even lead to you avoiding getting into those deep, dark places, getting into those deep depressions, because you have something that you're working towards every day, you're making progress towards that you can look forward to. That's, I guess, kind of giving you like a a support whenever you're even going
1: through tough stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so why I like to call the process of grief recovery, turning one's pain into power and or purpose is because that's the experience that I have had so many times over with clients where when the grief is lifted and that boulder of sadness and grief is lifted from our backs, And remind me also, Kamani, to address um, anger and grief and anger. Don't let me forget that, please. When we have that lifting of the grief from our shoulders, it's like uh, seeing the world with fresh eyes and being able to turn our pain into our personal power. And perhaps then having even a renewed or a new purpose is so exciting to witness. Truly is my personal purpose is that i am here to share to witness and inspire personal transformation and that's what i do with this work that i do every week and it is so fulfilling for me to to witness other people walking through a painful time we all have them. If we're human, we're going to have them. It's a guarantee. It's what do we do when we have that sadness? And that's where John was coming from. He said forever back, 43 years back, he went to so many bookstores to find out what to do about the despair he felt about his son's death. And he, he, he said, I know how I feel. I want to know what the heck to do about it. And that's how this step-by-step program began. So there's that. So now that I asked you to remind me, now I remember anger and grief. Uh, So anger is so often the fallback, the easy fallback for you guys who are listening. When you get angry and you act out and you go crazy with your anger, I know in my work and being a sister to my brothers, that anger is grief turned inside out. That's what anger is. Beneath all that crazy anger and insane sometimes behavior is grief and sadness turned backwards. And so addressing that straightforward and working with that kind of anger is really a pleasure for me because I know beneath it is sadness and grief from whatever happened that might be long ago or whatever is showing up in life today. But the two combined can create immense anger for someone who has been taught that expressing feelings is not okay. It's crazy.
0: You know, it's it, 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 it kind of just makes me think that uh, some of the people that you see, like in prison and all that, that are in there for murder and all types of other things, people will look at these criminals or whoever with these antisocial personality disorders and they'll think wow what a what a terrible guy or you know he must be evil or something like that but really if you kind of think about it from that perspective that you just gave uh, think about how much that person had to be grieving or like how upset they had to have been with themselves and then also not being in touch with their own emotions being able to even communicate how they might feel about something toward they got, think about how they got to the point to where they even got that angry and could even do something like that because it's not exactly. like these people are just, You know, coming from ideal backgrounds and such, and you know, have perfect lives and they're going out doing these types of things. It really just kind of makes you think about that. And you see, the majority of the prison population is men and most of the violent offenders are men. And so it's no surprise that due to the fact that we're in a society where that's the standard for men to bottle that stuff up and to not actually deal with it. And as a result, it's kind of festering within people. It's only a matter of time before some of these people pop their lid and start to do some of these irrational, violent, and dangerous things.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And every time I hear a story, a murder, whatever the immense ill behavior is, where my mind goes because of how I've been taught and how I think is, I say to myself, what happened? What happened to him? What happened to him that made him want to commit murder? Or make him act out in that way. Because at one time, he was this precious little infant in his mother's arms who was innocent and precious and and just born to this world, this crazy world, this wonderful and crazy world that we live in. What happened is what goes through my mind every time. And so, yes, if in the prison population, what would be possible would be a team of grief recovery specialists in every prison walking through these eight weeks with these guys and women. Oh my goodness, what kind of um, better lives would they have when they are free to leave? Amazing, because of what this is. People don't just act out and commit murder and do heinous acts out of nowhere. Something happened for them to do that, to act out what was it is always what I wonder. It's just my thinking. Dr. Gabor Maté is an incredible psychotherapist, psychiatrist who talks uh, uh, often about addiction is his specialty. And he says that it doesn't necessarily equal that every time we as human beings were traumatized in youth, mentally, emotionally, sexually, physically, whatever that might've been, that we are going to develop an addiction. However, he says, beneath every single addiction is grief. And that's what I find in my work in the detox center where I work. And by the way, I don't think I've mentioned this, but I am so uh, committed to taking part of my work to the addiction field because My late father was a recovering alcoholic later in life. My dad, my dad got sober Kamani at age 77. And when he died at 91, I had given him his 14th year chip. So anyone who's listening, who loves someone who is an addict of any kind, I say, never, ever give up for the miracle that can happen because it can happen. And even though the early years in our home were chaotic and filled with anger and upset and mood swings and all of it. And my witnessing, as I said to you earlier, with my dad, with my brothers and his behavior that was so cruel later in life, he was able to work on himself and have new awareness and apologize for his behaviors of early in our years and when he died i was able to have peace of mind and heart having said everything i needed to say to my dad before he passed of what had hurt me as a little girl and that was such a gift oh my goodness that was such a gift so i think that anyone who loves another who is an addict can always hold out for the hope that in their lifetime they might want to reach out and be in recovery because it is never too late, no matter what age they are, that they can have recovery.
0: I appreciate you sharing that. And it's good to know uh, that, would you share in your background, everything, how this is something, you know, what we talked about with the men that affected you personally with your own father. And just from sitting here hearing you talk and kind of thinking on some of the things that you said, something that kind of pops into my head about these situations where You know, guys might be uh, addicts or might be acting out in violent ways is that in a way it's kind of it's kind of as if they're trying to, like, take back control in some sort of way. And I think the main thing that's threatened in a lot of these cases where people act out violently is people feel like their their masculinity is threatened. You know, something about it is that if you don't feel like you have control over your environment, if something's upsetting you and you feel like there's nothing that you can do about it. It can feel emasculating. And so in a way, acting out in these sorts of ways could potentially be like a like coping mechanism for that person to try and gain back that control, to gain back that sense of, of their manhood. And because one thing I've seen, like in a lot of cases, like coming through middle school and high school, even college, and actually now, you know, if, if you go out to like a, a bar or something and you see people get in a fight there is when people feel disrespected or something like that, that's, an attack on their masculinity, and that's when you see people get the most violent when they do the the craziest things. And so that's just kind of a thought that I had whenever you're talking about that.
1: Yes, you're hundred yeah, percent right on, and that's what that anger can be exactly about. Is they felt less than someone made them feel less than, and many times in our culture, who are we all raised by? We're raised by parents who didn't go to parent training school. Who did the best they could with what they knew. And many times our parents were raised by immigrants from other countries who for whom sometimes English was a second language, or whatever the case might have been. And the way that we that they were taught was to use their hands for the sake of showing their kids who's the boss was to slap them or be violent or be fill in the blank or however it was, it wasn't healthy. And if that's what we learn as kids, how are we supposed to take that into our later years without having something change our thinking, so that we can behave in a way that is without anger and upset, if that's what we were taught, and that's all we know, how can we be different, we have to have something be teaching us to behave differently. And in order to have that happen, we have to realize within ourselves, men or women, we don't feel okay about how we feel in our gut every day, something is wrong and we need help. And asking for that takes immense courage. I know I've said that many times during this hour, but for me, it is like so brave and something I so respect when anyone will come to me. And in that way, because men are taught not to ask for help, especially with men who say i'm really hurting and I, I, I need to talk to someone can we speak i'm just deeply touched, because it is not a part of our initial fabric of our culture.
0: Yeah, And so, like I was saying before, hopefully this conversation kind of sparks it amongst some of the guys that might be struggling with grief or addiction or anything else and maybe this will give them that motivation to go ahead and take a step maybe potentially reach out to you or other means to try and get help with some of these things whether it's an actual coach or books or anything like that and so we're pretty much we pretty much touched on everything that we had planned and so for anybody that wants to find you online uh, where would you recommend that they go
1: they can easily find me and um, gentlemen, as you're listening, guys, if you want to just have a mini session with me for being a guest on Kamani's podcast, that would be my honor. So just connect with me if you would like that. And you can connect through my website. It's lesleyjtolan.com And the spelling is L E S L E I G H J. T O L I N dot com. And will you be writing that in your notes somewhere so the guys can see it? Yes. So I'll make sure to have that in the uh,
0: description of the episode.
1: Beautiful. And uh, on my website, there's contact forms on every page on my website. Also, guys, if you want some good information on my website under the tab of resources, there are some wonderful free downloadable articles about grief, about the myths of grief. One of which, one of which is be strong for others. Don't show your emotions. Be strong for others. We have crazy myths in our culture. Maybe another time we can talk about the myths of grief. Um, So yes, that's where you can find me is uh, by my website or lesliejtolin at gmail.com is my email address.
0: All right, great. Well, that pretty much covers everything. And so once again, I'd like to thank you for coming on to the show. I think you offered a lot of value to the audience and uh, I'm sure that this will be one of the more popular episodes since it's one of the ones where we're touching on some of those taboo topics. And so hopefully I hear a lot of stuff and feedback from the guys about this one.
1: I'm so happy that we met Kamani and thank you for the honor of being a guest on your show. I truly appreciate it.
0: Yes, ma'am. Same here. I'm glad that we were able to get this working together, too.
1: <laughs> Look forward to talking with you soon.
0: All right, then. Thank you. Take care. All
1: right. Blessings.